Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. And here he is to discuss in the course of human events. Thanks. Hey everybody, we're going to kind of uh, talk back and forth, ask each other a few questions. Um, Sorry. Michael Reed first, he's going to step on my toes. Um, <laughs> Michael Reed first and then I'll read second and we'll read probably around like a dozen minutes each so yeah. don't worry, they won't be too long. Um, try to make it quick. Yeah, and uh, I thought just kind of to give you a sense of why the heck we're doing this together because um, it seems like our books are really quite different and they are quite different in many different ways. Um, but we've been really good buddies for a dozen years now. Um, we studied writing together, grew into who we are as writers together. And um, I was talking with Mike, and, and as different as our books are, um, there's something about when you have that kind of connection and that friendship and you talk about writing so much together that it gets in you. And our concerns are kind of amazingly similar in right. these novels. Yeah. Um, so I'll start off kind of asking Mike a question about that that I've been wondering for a while because He's, you know, among my best buds, and amazingly sweet guy, funny, kind, wonderful, and yet has written this book, <laughs> and this book is about really some pretty tough stuff. Um, uh, there's a lot of racism in it. There's a lot of uh, uh, there's kind of a separatist movement, a white supremacist kind of thing that goes on, and they're pretty unsavory characters in some ways. In some ways, also amazing characters. Um, and so I wanted to kind of ask, like, how did how did you come to write about these people? Right. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Um, everybody can hear, right? Um, I guess the short answer, I mean, it's growing up, I, you know, the bio sort of says it all to some extent. Uh, growing up in, in rural northwest Missouri in the 80s and the 90s, um, I was, as, as I sort of remain, a, a sensitive artist type. Uh, didn't really fit in very well um, among a lot of, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> among, you know, even my family and, and you know, extended family and, and some friends who, you know, hunting and, and um, things like that were pretty common and I wanted to stay home and draw, you know, or whatever. And then there was the drug sort of epidemic, really, of crystal meth, which hit essentially right as I was becoming a teenager and uh, it even reached into like I, I grew up in a small town that was an hour from Kansas City an hour from Independence but crystal meth was the easiest drug to get your hands on if you wanted to and um, it as it has done in a lot of communities it just sort of ravaged you know uh, people and especially for some reason the rural rural communities it's cheap uh, you know it's a sort of cheap and easy high and stuff like that all that's kind of general, you know, I, I did have a good friend growing up who 
ended up, you know, the sort of epitome of the slippery slope. Um, he was sort of an extremist just in his character and his personality and uh, went from one thing to another. And he was the first person among all of us to start doing drugs. And I remember we were at the roller rink uh, one day um, with our Baptist church. And uh, he, like, we, during couples skate, um, when the reverend was out on the ice, well, not the ice, but the, the regular rink, you know, Paul and I, well, my friend and I uh, sat down and um, he said, I've been thinking about starting to take drugs. And uh, <laughs> put a lot of thought into it, and I, I was nervous and everything, and of course, and and so the basic thing is he did do that, and he really, you know, the you know, marijuana led to everything, um, and then he went way off the rails, ended up born again, and then that, of course, because he was a born extremist, he took to the next level, which was joining a militia in Missouri, buying handguns and, and starting to stand around in fields talking about the government. And uh, that really sort of happened as I was starting to write this book. And he was so taken by a book that appears in my book um, and that it just, you know, it was struck me that how um, people can be influenced by uh, propaganda, whether it's you know, right or left, and and it happened to be a book, uh, Behold a Pale Horse, that's this assemblage of crazy conspiracy theories, but he bought it and thought that the gun raids were right around the corner, and, and it was very, you know, I just thought, this is a story that I sort of know and I can tell, you know, another yeah. way, because the other thing is he was a good guy, you know, um, and like people who I didn't get along with or whatever, you know, even in my family who would, you know, pressure me about going hunting or fishing or boxing or whatever, and this was all before I ever did any kind of karate. You know, I did that because I got my ass kicked, you know, like, you know, I, um, it just, I could see both sides of people, you know, and I could see the good in somebody who otherwise, you know, other people might look at and be afraid of or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, so with that kind of background, um, I, I, I'd just love to hear him go ahead and read. I had some other questions, but I think maybe if you can just give us the elevator pitch, set it up, and then, yeah, and then read. Yeah, awesome. too long. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, so, yeah, In the Course of Human Events um, is the story of Clyde Twitty, young uh, Midwestern guy who lost his good union job right out of high school, um, hasn't really worked much in a few years. He's at the ripe age of 20 pretty much given up hope for any kind of future. Um, then he meets Jay Smalls, who is a charismatic fight instructor, karate instructor, takes him under his wing, and um, fairly soon he, he instills in Clyde confidence that, that Clyde didn't have, uh, and he directs the burning anger that is inside Clyde that was aimless um, to a deserving target, uh, the American government. So um, all of that is underway, and um, Jay does this through a series of increasingly dangerous and frightening tests of Clyde. He's really indoctrinating him into his anti-government belief system. And um, this scene, this chapter, picks up where Clyde is recovering from being seriously injured after failing one of Jay's tests. Uh, and Jay has convinced Clyde that he failed the test because he wasn't committed enough to the cause. He still had one foot in the past. So Jay has taken Clyde to his, to Clyde's uncle's house to say goodbye. Doesn't bother me. 
By the time Jay turned into Willie's drive 30 minutes later, Clyde hadn't come up with any last words for his uncle. I'll wait here, Jay said. The unfamiliar vehicle brought Willie out of his house. Clyde threw open the door and waved and called his uncle's name as he walked up the gravel drive. Well, howdy, stranger, Willie said. Get yourself a new truck? Taking the porch with a bit of a limp, Clyde shook his head. It's Jay's. He wasn't sure if Willie could see Jay sitting in it from here. He reached his uncle and hugged him. That's an interesting choice of mustache, Willie said. Clyde grinned, shrugged, and they went inside. It was cold in the room, and Willie had grouped his chairs around the wood stove. Clyde went into the kitchen and washed the skin of burned coffee from the bottom of Willie's pot, ignoring Willie, telling him not to. Then he made a fresh pot and brought two hot cups to the stove. Willie's dog lay on a soiled rug matted with his hair. How are you feeling, Willie asked. Clyde said, been better. He dragged a clawed hand diagonally across his torso. Pain's come out of nowhere, literally like I'm committing seppuku. Willie nodded, watched Clyde. Still slurring a bit. What? I say you're still slurring your words a bit. Oh, not bad, Willie said. I didn't know you, I wouldn't notice. I don't hear it, Clyde said. Jay got you doing your exercises, physical therapy and whatnot? Clyde wagged his head and took a sip of coffee. A little. Says I gotta let the wounds heal before I try anything too hard or I'll injure myself all over again. So I'm just getting fat. Willie grinned and made a noise. I'm sure Jay knows what he's doing. That was all Clyde needed to dive into a turmoil of warring thoughts. While his uncle slurped coffee, sucking it from the tips of his yellow mustache, bad thoughts in Clyde's head were beaten into submission by the good. Jay does know what he's doing, like nobody else. Willie opened the stove door and added some logs to the fire, with fingers so hard and worn he didn't need a lid lifter. Got enough wood for the winter, Clyde said. Willie nodded. Oh, yeah. Do you? Willie gave Clyde a thumbs up with the hand not holding his cup. Sorry I didn't help this time. A little near-death experience don't mean you can shirk your chores around your uncle's house. Clyde laughed. The dog stood up and walked a few circles. Clyde patted its gummy fur and leaned against its shin. It leaned against his shin. What about food? How you doing for food, Clyde said. I've been getting my provisions from Suttas in Grain Valley. Fine. Suttas, they got everything you like? Willie stared at Clyde a moment and changed the way he was sitting, the chair groaning under him. I ain't got extravagant tastes. Clyde took up his cup, saw that it was empty, and stared into it. Merry Christmas, by the way. Sorry I didn't call. Same to you, Willie said, raising his cup. Don't you worry about your Uncle Willie. Clyde stared at the fire through the dark glass. He hadn't prepared, didn't know what to tell Willie. I might not, uh... A log shifted inside the stove, bumped the door, and settled. Willie's feet shifted and the dog raised its head. Clyde said, I might not be seeing you for a little while. He wanted to look up to see his uncle's face, but he feared if he did, he'd lose it. His eyes and the angle of his head remained downward. Willie pushed himself up out of his chair and Clyde reached out to help, but his uncle shuffled past. He entered the kitchen and returned with the coffee pot clanking against his aluminum cane and refilled their cups. Clyde let Willie use his arms as leverage to get back in the chair without sitting down too heavily. The muscles he'd built training with Jay helped him hold his uncle's body. Last year, before training, Clyde had ended up falling on top of his uncle once, less than no help. He put the coffee pot down. The dog sniffed at it. He sat. Neither of them spoke while the cups warmed their hands. Clyde wrapped his around it, the warmth clammy on his fingers, not as rough as Willie's, but rougher now on both sides than they'd ever been. Willie hooked his cup with 
pointer finger and sat it on his thigh, either the thick fabric of his work pants or the death of feeling in his legs insulating him from heat. Clyde had told himself coming here that, there, that he was not going to cry in front of his Uncle Willie. He'd convinced himself of this by tricking his mind into believing that this break from his family would be temporary and brief. Once they'd gone through with Jay's plans, they would all enter into a new period of life. And who was Clyde to know what that might be? In the years to come, it was very possible that Jay, his family, and Clyde would be able to pursue whatever dreams they chose. This was what Clyde told himself as he sat across from Willie, who, Clyde saw, had been staring at him intently for some time. Going somewhere, are you? Willie said. Clyde shook his head, then he said, yeah. Where are you going? Clyde reached down and patted the dog. It's just a training thing. Happens all the time in Japan. Karate guys going to the mountains for a while, a year, year and a half, focus on training. Willie stared into Clyde. You planning on being gone that long? No, no, that was just a dumb example. Clyde could tell that Willie wanted to question him a whole lot more than he was. He could see that he could hardly keep still so many questions were filling his head. Clyde leaned back and left the dog alone. Willie's eyes, when Clyde met them, were wet. He blinked and Clyde looked away. Don't worry, he said to the dog. Willie got out of his chair and Clyde reached for him again. This time Willie pulled his arm out of the way. He limped to the other side of the room on his cane. I don't know, he said. I just don't know. I do not know if that Jay is as good an influence on you as I might have thought. I gotta be honest. If he could have moved his head, it would have been shaking. Clyde nodded his lap. He hadn't expected this. Look at, what, look at what's happened to you since you met him, Willie said. You got shot? You came this close to pushing up daisies. Clyde said, nothing to do with him, even though it had everything to do with him. The way you're looking at things right now, I'm not sure it's for the good. And now you give me this, won't be seeing you. You're about the only person I see. Clyde's heart sank. Selfish. Everybody's so selfish. Here he thought his uncle had been concerned for his well-being. Turned out he just didn't want to be left alone. Clyde did not want to argue right now. He wanted to have a nice time that he could remember later, something for the reserves. But he didn't like being attacked either, and he didn't like his teacher being questioned. All Jay's done is open my eyes to the way the world really is. Willie leaned on his cane. How's that then, the way it really is? All right, why not? Might as well let him have it, Clyde thought. Zog, Clyde said. What? Zog, the Zionist occupational government, Clyde said. Zog. What's that? I don't know what that is. Nobody outside of the movement does. The movement, Willie said. The patriot movement, the resistance, Clyde said. Since the creation of Israel, Uncle Willie, no matter who's elected president every four years is in Washington, it's a, it's a secret group of Jews who really run the country. The world, really, because the UN and the US and the Eurozone are all in it together. Zog is powerful, wealthy, and the American people are nothing but puppets working themselves half to death to fund Zog's interests. Which are, Clyde used his fingers to tick them off, military industrial, which leads to profits, which leads to economic disparity, which leads to global unrest, which leads to terrorism, which makes it easy for them to take away our rights, attack the Constitution, repeal the Second Amendment, and that's just, that's just what's happening today. Don't get me started on what they got planned for the future. Clyde shook his head, but he wasn't looking at Willie. One thing I know now without a doubt, Uncle Willie, and I wish I'd known this a long time ago, and I hate to say this to you because you work hard and don't ever complain, but the greatest lie, the greatest joke, really, that's been played on the working people of this nation is the American dream. Willie opened his mouth, held it open, working up a word, then he shut it, grunted, and turned away. Suddenly, 
Clyde was worried, suddenly Clyde was sorry he'd been so honest. Most people didn't understand, didn't want to understand the complicated workings of the New World Order because most people would not want to admit that they too were one of Zog's soulless puppets. It had taken Clyde weeks of study just to have a basic grasp of it all and he knew there was still so much to learn. Willie shifted his weight, the floor groaned below him and he leaned so far into his cane that Clyde got up thinking that his uncle was about to fall. Well, Willie said, shuffling back into the kitchen and disappearing from view, I guess you've given the matter a lot of thought. I have, Clyde thought. I really have, he said loudly. There are books. I don't care to see them, Willie said from the kitchen. Clyde took that as his cue. He got up, went into the kitchen to put his dirty cup in the sink and saw Willie leaning against the counter looking out the window. The temperature in the kitchen was 10 to 20 degrees cooler than it was in the front room. Clyde washed his cup. Don't worry about that, Willie said, his face bathed in light from outside. Clyde ignored him and set his clean cup on the drying rack. He washed the plate and knife that was in the sink too and said, do me a favor. Willie didn't look at him, but he shifted his weight. Tell mom for me. Tell her what? That I won't see her for a little while. Won't see her neither, Willie said. Ain't just me then? Of course it ain't just you. It's, Clyde almost couldn't say the word, everybody. Willie took a quick breath in through his one working nostril and stiffened his pose in the window light. No thank you, he said. Willie, I think it'd be best if you told her whatever you got to tell her yourself. Might regret it. Clyde wasn't sure Willie meant that he, Uncle Willie, might regret it if he was the one to tell her or that Clyde might regret it if he didn't tell her himself. He dried his hands and ended up standing behind his uncle. He could see out the glass what his uncle could see, the lawn in need of cutting, the neglected berm. Clyde studied the back of his uncle's head. The hair, blonde, streaked with gray and long enough to gather in the collar of his shirt, was thinning against a large, pink, liver-spotted skull. The shoulders were held in that permanent shrug. Clyde put his hands on top of them. Willie moved when he did, shifting his body with an impulse to look in a way that he no longer could. Clyde felt him take a deep breath. Heard from your dad lately, Willie said. Clyde laughed in his nose. No, he said, have you? Nah, Willie raised his right hand and gave a thumbs down. Clyde patted his uncle's shoulders once and left the kitchen. When he yanked the front door open, he waited a moment, watching Willie's shadow on the kitchen floor. By the stove, Willie's dog raised its head. By the time Clyde hauled himself back up into Jay's truck where he belonged, he'd managed to control his heart and seemed just as calm and collected as anybody. Good, Jay said. Good, Clyde said. That was impressive. Uh, <laughs> Go back. Great. Nobody trip over that. Nobody trip over that. Um, Thank you, Mike, for reading that. I, um, I'm, I'm so glad you read that section because I was thinking one of the things I didn't say about this book, but one of the things I love about it so much, is that it, can you all hear okay if I'm talking this far back from Mike? Um, is that it goes to places that most of us are, would be kind of scared to go, uh, and it forces us into the value to kind of way into that. Was this other element that's the kind of alternative present element in this book, uh, which are these space mirrors? Um, they're called zerkala, which just means mirrors in Russian. And um, they uh, carry light down onto the dark parts of the Earth, specifically one city that's an experiment, uh, experimental city that's lit 24 7. Uh, and I came across those. Um, from an NPR story that I heard. 
uh, it was just a kind of throwaway line. This professor was being interviewed. He'd written a book about the history of nighttime. And he said, oh, and by the way, the Russians in 93, they sent these mirrors up uh, to reflect light down to the earth and, and rid darkness from the earth. And, I, and then he kept talking. And I was like, that is so freaking crazy. You know, it was just like, and I was like, I have to do something with that. I couldn't get rid of that idea. Um, so it became kind of an obsession for me. I wrote a short story about it, and then this initially was supposed to be a short story about that too. So that's kind of what got me writing towards Russia, is that I wound up writing this thing about these mirrors and this, and this kind of uh, alternative reality fantastical thing. Um, but the, the kind of last little bit of that, the, the, ex, the stuff that's external to me, um, that I think led me towards Russia, actually ties back to what I was saying in the beginning about that our books, as different as they are, rural Missouri and uh, secessionists' movements and all that and like fantastical, fab fabulistic Russia, um, one of the places they cross over is through a concern with what's happened under contemporary capitalism uh, and the way that we have this this need for constant productivity, the way that uh, the way our societies are governed right now uh, economically, it has to be perpetual growth. Um, and what that does to people, uh, what that does to the middle class, what that does to the working class. Um, and for me, what, what happened in Russia when the Soviet Union collapsed is that there was this kind of explosion of this cowboy capitalism that was unfettered and that led to a kind of society that felt like it was a crystallization of some of these concerns. Um, there was no safety net at all, all of this kind of stuff. So I wanted to write a world where I could kind of look with a sharpened lens at that issue that we both share in our books. Good <laughs> the sharpened lens. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll just I'll read a little bit. Um, so uh, I'm going to read actually a section I've never read before, uh, so I apologize. Um, but it's, uh, is this key all here okay and everything? Okay, I'll stop fiddling with that. Um, it's almost halfway, well, about a third of the way through the book. It's a long book. Um, I thought it was halfway. I was like, that's got to be halfway, but no. Um, <laughs> So uh, I, I'll give you just a little bit of a of background. The guts of the story, the heart of the story, uh, is this relationship between two brothers. They're twins. Uh, Yarek is older by about eight minutes, but he takes on the role of the older brother. Um, Dima is his younger brother. Um, and they grow up each other's rock, the most important person in each other's life. Um, and then adult life starts to intrude on that. The pressures of, that I've been talking about, of work life, but also family life, intrude on that and tear them apart. Um, and the story is really about the two of them trying to hold on to their love for each other. Um, one of the main ways that life comes in and starts to tear them apart is there's this oligarch who has put these space mirrors up and who also owns this massive, the largest greenhouse in the world called the Orangeria. Um, and Yarek, the older brother, works on it. This oligarch's name is, is Bazarov, though he insists on being called Baz. Um, and uh, he kind of adopts Yarek, takes him under his wing, and starts to kind of push him up to up the corporate ladder. Um, Yarek doesn't really know why, but he's being, uh, he's being kind of taken care of and, and rising very rapidly. At the same time, his brother is becoming essentially a bum, and this creates a huge rift between them. So with that said, I'm going to read a scene between Yarek and Bazarov. Uh, this is the second time that Bazarov, for reasons Yark doesn't understand, has sent his driver to take Yark to come meet him. Uh, and Bazarov greets him, standing only in his underwear on these docks, prepared to go kayaking uh, out on this middle of this lake. Yark has never been kayaking before. Bazarov jumps in the kayak, takes off, disappears. Yark's left 
flailing trying to reach him and getting increasingly pissed off. <clears throat> so I'll begin when Yark finally reaches him where Bazarov stopped. Okay. <clears throat> the paddle had torn his hands and his shoulders felt ready to rip right off and his teeth were clenched against their chattering when he finally caught up with the billionaire. They had gone so far for so long that the shore had shed the glass, the glass is the orange area. To Yarek's left, the land was a long strip of dark green trees. To his right, Lake Otseva opened up gray to the horizon. In between, the red kayak floated. Bazarov had stretched out his feet crossed over the boat's long nose, the paddle resting on his chest like a bar of a bench press. You know, Bazarov said, the last time I went kayaking with someone was with Pavel. With, Yarg thought, went with. He wanted to shove the man's boat, but he just waited, his kayak bobbing, the ache oscillating, and his muscles, the rucked skin on his hands, starting to stiffen up. Far out on the lake, one of the oligarch's berg-sized ships droned. From the shore, almost too far away to hear, there came the low wash of wind through firs, and damned if he was going to ask who Pavel was. That, the man said, goggles covering his eyes with reflections of sky, was a long time ago. And also, it was on the Black Sea. Have you ever been to the Black Sea? No, Yarek said. To the Caspian, Bazarov asked. I've never been anywhere, Yarek said. Once to Moscow when I was on the Caspian, Bazarov went on. They have one of these, but theirs is up on dry land. One of what? Slowly, the rest of his body staying still, Bazarov turned the paddle parallel to him, slid it down into the hole from which he'd drawn his legs, left it sticking up at a low slant. He let go, lay there, blade swaying against the sky. Have you ever heard, Bazarov said, of the Caspian Sea Monster? Then he rolled off the boat, slipped down the side, and splashed into the lake, where, his hair floating like a patch of golden algae, his back like the top of a rock, his maroon rear, his legs, his kicking feet, he disappeared. For a moment, the water he'd churned shook Yark's boat, then that was gone too. Carefully, Yark dipped a blade, drew a little closer to where Bazarov had been. Staring down, he could see browns and greens below, the th staring down, he could see browns and greens below, <clears throat> thought he caught a glimpse of something pale moving in the dark, then nothing. The depth, the murk, the silhouette of his own reflection. He looked over at the other boat, listing lazily on the waves, the paddle knocking, knocking. For the first time since that long ago night in the stolen rowboat, he felt the enormity of the lake, the power rippling across its surface, the unknowable everything beneath. Something broke the surface. He heard it like a seabird landing next to his boat, and when he jerked around to look, there was Bazarov treading, breathing hard. He lifted the goggles. They rested on his forehead like a second pair of gleaming eyes. His own eyes were the color of the lake, quiet, almost contemplative. Well, this is it. The man shook his head, flung his wet hair from his face. Each time I forget what a beast it is. A hundred meters long from head to tail, stretched out on the bottom like some huge eel. Yarek leaned over a little to look. A tug on his paddle, Bazarov drawing himself closer to the boat. It's down there, the man said. Where? Yark asked. Right under us, the man said. Mr. Bazarov, Yark started. The man made a face as if he'd been hurt. Baz, Yark said, what are we talking about? And Baz smiled. Give me your paddle, he said. Hanging an arm over it, he reached up, yanked his goggles off. Really, you've never heard of it? I don't know what it is. Then Bazarov held out the goggles. Swim down and see. The Caspian Sea Monster. Somewhere in the far reaches of his mind, he had heard of it, but he couldn't see anything. The water was too clouded with particles of plant life rotting away in the lake, too murky with tannins, stirred up silt, the churning of the waves. He could feel them moving above him, and then he couldn't, 
and his hands stinging, his arms aching, his lungs so full of air it fought his strokes he swam down, down towards the ever-darkening depths, the water getting colder and colder, and the light from above leaving him until it seemed he was swimming into nothing but black. Had it been a thing out of his old uncle's fairy tales, a creature from the fables his father had carved on his boat, he could almost see his father's mouth, the black mustache, the hole between the open lips saying the words, could almost hear them. By the time he saw it through the murk, he was so close a few seconds more he might have touched its back. That was what he had thought was the blackness of the water beneath him. That was what had seemed the unseeable bottom of the lake. That was how big it was. His arms stopped moving, his legs stilled, and for a second he was suspended there, staring down at what looked like a blue whale's back, so wide he could barely make out where it sloped away at the sides, so long he couldn't see the beginning or end of it at all, only if only a few places where scales seemed to glint, where the slime that he sensed smothering the rest of it must have been washed away. Then his lungs burst. The last of his air erupted from his mouth, his chest crushed in on itself, and he was kicking, thrashing for the surface away from whatever was down there. As he flailed upwards, he kept his head bent, his eyes on it, his own voice telling him it wouldn't move, couldn't, wasn't alive, but was that a shiver, a ripple? His, his sight blurred, the goggles pressing into his sockets, and then his breath was gone and his arms were unable to work and the lake water burst into his nose, filled his throat. For a second, he didn't know what grabbed him. Then somewhere in his skull came the realization they were hands, hands clasped around his chest, arms beneath his own, his own face in the air, a body against him, its breath, Bazarov. What did you think, the man said, breathing hard close to Yarg's ear, that it was going to eat you? Yarg flapped his arm, coughed. Bazarov's laugh brought him around as much as anything else. What the fuck is that, he said, and kicking, I'm okay, tried to pull out of the man's grip. You sure, the man said. What the fuck is it, he asked. Not missing any toes? Fuck off. And Bazarov was laughing again, heaving him up onto one of the boats, hauling himself the rest of the way, and Yarg remembered who he was talking to. He lay flopped over the kayak, belly breathing against the hard plastic arms clutching his side, clutching the side. I'm sorry, he said. There in front of him, the billionaire, the she-bear, his boss, treaded water looking up into his eyes. You want to know what the fuck it is? I'm sorry, Yark repeated, but Bazarov only beamed. I call it the Serpent of Osieva. The Americans called it the, only, the one they saw in grainy pictures, the Caspian Sea Monster. But what it is, 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 is an ectronoplan. Wait, Bazarov gripped Yark's forearms with his hands. I know, he held on, still treading with his legs. I know, Cossack, what the fuck is that? On the way back, he told him. How over half a century ago, the Bureau for Hydrofoil Design had built the first 500 tons, 100 meters long, a colossal cross between airplane and ship, whose eight mount head-mounted engines would hurl it forward at such speed, its wing-like fins would compress the air against the water's surface and give it lift. How at 700 kilometers per hour, 20 meters above the sea, it would rise out of the realm of hydrofoils into one that existed only for it. How though eventually they'd be built down on the Caspian, the prototype was tested on Otseva first, then to keep it from the spying eyes of satellites sunk. The first creature of its kind, a genius's life work, and all these years buried in the lake. As if, Bazarov said, he was one day to collapse the entire Orangeria, let it simply disappear in hundreds of hectares of weeds, woods grown up, a forest hiding the great glass sea. You, Bazarov told them, are the first person I've brought to see it. They were paddling side by side, the wind now coming from behind, the waves helping them along, and maybe it was his relief at that, maybe just the rhythm they were in, blades lifting and falling in synchronicity, but Yarik glanced at the man beside him and asked, what about Pavel? Bazarov's paddle blades, blades dipped, rose, dipped again. 
From the shore there came the distant boom of trees being felled, the first gleam farther up of the orange area's glass, and then stop paddling. Yark watched his blade streak by Bazarov's stilled one. The man gave the water one more stroke to bring him back beside. They floated, still slipping forward over the waves, the wind still pushing them. Give me your paddle, Bazarov said. And as he took hold of the near blade, he slid Yark his own. Hold both. Reaching past his lap into the kayak's hole, he brought out a square of something, shiny, crinkled plastic. Watching Bazarov unfold it, Yark realized it was a tarp, and when they tied each corner to a pole and held the poles between them and opened them up, it became a sail, and their kayak's sailboats, the wind, a gale, the lake shot by. Between them, the tarp billowed, their arms shook, the wave spray blew over their bows and wet their faces, and Yark could feel it sting all over his cheeks, and he squinted into it, let it rush his teeth. Beside him, Bazarov let out a whoop. Through his whip, whipping hair, his eyes glinted at Yarik. The Yaroslavoplan, he shouted. The Bazoplan, Yarik shouted back. The Bazoslavoplan. And they blew across the lake, the surface a blur, the waves machine gunning against the bottoms of their boats. Pavel, Bazarov shouted, was always too afraid to do this. Afraid of everything. That picture of the boar, me and the boar on my desk. He was even afraid to take it. A picture of a dead boar. The dog handler had to take it, and I had flown him all the way up, brought him on the hunt, hoped to make a hunter of him. Bazarov's eyes held on him, seemed to take him in, appraise him, and then they left him, and the man gazed straight ahead again. This winter, Bazarov shouted, we'll go together. Along the northern shore, I have a hunting lodge there. Those woods grow boars the size of bulls. You with one Colt 45, me with the other. None of this big game rifle bullshit. Cowboy, he shouted, you haven't lived till you've seen a couple hundred kilos of boar charging at you through the snow and nothing between its tusks and your balls but the barrel of a 150-year-old pistol. <coughs> Bazarov laughed, the sound flung away by the wind. The wind yard could feel gusting against the tarp, feeling his throbbing hands and the way all his skin felt whipped to life. And flying across the lake, the glass now shining on the shore, Otsieva stretching out on the side all the way to the horizon, he knew who Pavel was. But it didn't feel to Yarek like Bazarov was trying to turn him into a replacement for a son. It didn't feel like his boss wanted to become some sort of a father. In that moment, Yarek felt instead what it might have been like to have had an older brother. I'll stop there. Thanks, John. Thanks, Mike. Um, that, uh, I love that. That was great. Um, it also really struck me again that how, how our books, while being so different, are, are actually very similar in a lot of ways. A lot of the sort of construction of them, I mean, there's this was, you know, Yarrick. You've got a character essentially being manipulated by a powerful uh, character, by more powerful older man, yeah. and same thing is going on in mine, and it's yeah, it's really great because these developed completely independently. I think it's something know. we're both interested in because I've always manipulated you as a right. powerful exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. older man. So, right? Yeah. Wait, you're you're older. <laughs> no, I'm I'm older. Right. Um, yeah, a little. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I also wanted to ask you, I, I suppose, because both of us read early drafts of each other's books, and. Um, the draft, I read a draft of yours that was half as long and actually only contained, uh, for the most part, it was the story of Dima uh, and Dima's arc yeah. throughout the novel. Um, I'm not even sure if in that draft Bazarov existed. Didn't. Right? So um, I guess I wanted to ask you if, if about your writing process, how your book went from being uh, the story of Dima's sort of turn away from capitalism yeah. um, and the 
problems that that caused his family to the story of two brothers whose turns were diametrically opposed to each other. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. And it's, it's well, I didn't mention it before, but it's one of the reasons that, that we wanted to read together is that kind of a question, you know, nobody, very, very few other people read a draft that had only Dima as, as everything was from Dima's perspective. Now, a lot of it's from Yarick's perspective and we're in, in Yarick's head. Um, so, uh, so thanks for, for bringing that up. Um, I think, you know, like I say, at heart, this has always been about the brothers. And what had happened was I was tracking the way that they were split apart and the way they're split apart. And I was entirely on Dima's side of this um, and, and, and feeling for him this whole time. But at the very end, um, I felt like, and actually, you were one of the people who told me this, so I shouldn't say I felt like Mike told me, um, <laughs> that we needed to understand the other brother's point of view as well um, in order for that split to not feel essentially kind of indulgent uh, in, in Dima's character, um, but to feel more complex and real and have hopefully the pain that's for both of them. Um, and it, it, was, it was hugely important to me because it actually forced me into, not that my brother and I have a very close relationship, but this comes from my relationship with my brother and our love for each other. And it forced me to kind of look at things from some of the pressures that he has on, on him and not just kind of uh, take my side in this as well. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And I guess I'd, I'd just ask you, um, because we have read each other's stuff, I read an early draft about your piece, and then maybe we'll go ahead and open it up to questions. Um, but so one of the biggest differences, Mike worked on this book for a long, long time. And uh, one of the largest differences in there was uh, around the kind of how, uh, how much voice and lyricism and a kind of a tone was at the fore in the beginning, and then uh, as you, the more you worked on it, the more that got kind of pared away, and it became uh, a little bit more kind of like straightforward and hard hitting. Um, and I wonder what happened in there, what the kind of that process was about. Um, and yeah, yeah. Um, thanks, Josh. Um, ultimately, I, I suppose it was a draft that I wrote that was about 150,000 words, and this this one's around 100, um, and. I just got bored with it. I was, you know, I, I was reading it. I was just like, ah, oh, too many words. It's like, uh, you know, Salieri, too many notes. Um, but uh, I decided, I, so I just started literally, I, that whole manuscript I went through and I just butchered it, just on the page with a pencil, um, page by page. And I actually cut out about 50,000 words. And the act of doing that, um, it was, it wasn't, Unconscious, but it, I knew also that I was reducing. I was essentially distilling the voice, the prose style, to mimic uh, or embody the laconic Midwestern man who really says very little and certainly doesn't express himself in any profound way. Uh, you know, unless like pushed or cornered or something like that. Like a wild animal. Like a wild yeah. animal, and then. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it was. It was really I. I, and I used to, and it also marked a turning away from, from reading, you know, I was reading Cormac McCarthy at the time, a lot, and his stuff was creeping in, you know, to my book. I, I was, characters were hoving over a mountain, and you know, <laughs> and I was like, nah, you know, and, and Johanna here, my wife, would read it and write little notes, Cormac McCarthy called, he wants his <laughs> sentence back, you know, stuff like that. So I wasn't, you know, all completely, uh, Unconscious, um, but yeah. 
So, and, and whereas you, I mean, I, I noticed, because I've been reading stuff since, since well, for 10 years, and uh, when we were in the MFA together, and your work has always been lyrical, um, but I know I did notice in in the Grey Glass Sea and the and and other stuff you've been writing lately that you are actually pushing that even more so. Right. Um, and I mean, actually, wouldn't mind if you read, you were saying I was the reason. <laughs> I, the very beginning of this, um, I think it. I don't know if it wins the. It probably doesn't win the award for the longest sentence in in literature, but it may be the longest first sentence. And I'd like you to read it's that. Long. I, and it's long. Do don't it. worry, it's not like pages long, guys. It's like a paragraph. So, uh, okay. So, so this is the opening sentence, which does go to kind of the way that lyricism for me has risen to the top, whereas Mike's been kind of paring it away. Um, so the opening sentence is this: Always the island had been out there, so far out over so much choppy water, far beyond the last great wave, the groaning ice when there was ice, the fog when there was fog, so distant in the middle of such a huge lake that for their first nine years, Niji that church made of those tens of thousands of wooden pegs, each one as small as a little boy's finger bones. Those wood shingled domes like tops upended to spin their points on the floor of the sky. The priests' black robes snapping in the wind, their beards blowing with the clouds, their droning ceaseless as the shore slap waves. Might have been just another fairy tale that Yadya Avia told. That's sentence one. <laughs> um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead. Thank you. I'm going to go ahead and just before we open up to questions, um, I'd love Mike to read one kind of short section like that too, um, just a couple of paragraphs or something, um, that, that points out what happened when he kind of paired away a lot of the stuff with the voice. And that's that the characters themselves started to pop. His, I mean, characters have always, for me, with Mike's writing, one of the things I love most about it is both characters and the scenes themselves, I feel like I need like one paragraph and it is totally alive for me and I can see those par par characters and they're like vibrant. So there's one character when Jay is introduced, one section. Maybe you read that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like at the auction, maybe like a half a page. Okay. <laughs> Um, this is very early, uh, and Clyde's only real job is once a week uh, driving cars to auction. And that's where he meets Jay. So um, here we have Clyde uh, hanging back after dropping off this car that Jay ends up buying for his daughter. Clyde made the auction with time to spare and parked the car in its designated slot. With a Mr. Pibb from the machine, he stood back watching about 50 people wait to bid on 10 vehicles. He was always curious to see who'd won the, what he'd driven personally. The bidding on the Firebird started at 250. When it hit 1,000, a bidder bowed out. The two remaining took it to 1,500 before one of them left the girl standing at his side and marched over to the other bidder. Jay Smalls, the man said, big loud voice, hand out. The other man shook it. The auctioneer paused and, confu and confusion spread through the crowd. The girl Jay Smalls had left yelled, Dad, and said, I don't know him, hiding her face and her hair. People laughed and the auctioneer asked if there was a problem. No problem, Jay Smalls said. His arms were long and tobacco brown and roped with veins and muscles. Just wanted to meet the competition. That brought more laughs Then Jay Smalls leaned in and whispered to the other bidder for a solid 10 seconds, patted him on the shoulder, said, all right, and returned to his daughter. 1,500, was it? Jay Small said to the auctioneer. <laughs> Thanks. And I, I guess, I mean, with that, we, we'll just yeah, we'll ask any to, questions uh, if you guys can. The floor. Yeah. Uh, for, uh, for Mike first, what happened to the shop words? Did you yeah. save them? I mean, there's probably a digital draft of that somewhere, but. Um, that was that was like work on the page with a pencil, and I, 
you know, spent probably a month or so doing that, and then it took two to three months to actually make those changes in the document. Um, so they were, it was like, you know, this word and that word and that word and half of this word. You know, it was not a chapter, you know, so much as a real parent. I know, it's amazing, yeah. Yeah, all that, and actually Josh has that art represented in a, in a what do you call them? Uh, book, plates. book plates. Yeah, yeah. So a, afterwards, if you guys get books and come up or something, I've got, I hand out book plates. It's like my, 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 my great, great grandfather was a salesman. And he, he, was, <laughs> he was a push cart peddler and he'd go around selling wares. So this has come down to me, obviously. And, and, so, and so I have these little book plates that I hand out, but they're, they're from the art in the book. That, you know. That's also the Russian side of the family, right? That is the Russian side. The Russian side. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, in the back. Um, I'm curious about the presence of Git in both books. And I, I, I know it may not resonate as much, but uh, the, the separatist movement is, is uh, founded on as much Git as I Right, yeah. yeah. Books that are leading them in interactions. And I know in the very last scene, you, you uh, touch back throughout the book several. Yeah, I mean, I think both books are kind of swept up in myth in their own way. Um, you know, for for me, for the great with the Great Glass Sea, it really springs from fable and myth, like I talked about. And the whole kind of uh, sensory feel of the book kind of comes from that world. It's part of what why the drawings are in there is I'm trying to kind of imbue it with that feeling. But there also is this idea of the past life, which is how Russians refer to before the, the fall of the Soviet Union, um, and the myths that built up around that, and what memory does, and how memory kind of shifts into myth as well. And the same thing happens with there are kind of competing political groups in, in my novel. Uh, there are these old communists who are kind of trying to bring back the, the glory days of communism, and then there are these various different anarchist groups that all have kind of their own myths of what life was like and what life can be. And I think in that way, it's very similar to what happens with the separatists and yours. Yeah, and I mean, I'm fa I've become fascinated, writing this book actually made me fascinated by the American mythology, American self-mythologizing. -mytho I think, uh, you know, not to be like a downer or anything, but I mean, what they talk about the American dream as a, you know, I, I think that's kind of like the, you know, the engine of, of our own uh, mythologizing. Um, and I... And clinging to that, yeah. clinging to that is largely what is uh, damaging the American worker today, is this false idea that it's still attainable. And I right. think, and, and that's something, again, that kind of links, yeah. links us. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a great question. Um, and, and of course, any group um, doing anything, and that's one of the reasons why uh, there are a number of books in my book that they are reading, you know, from the Turner Diaries. All these books are real, you know, the Turner Diaries written by the former head of the National Alliance, a white separatist, white supremacist organization, um, who wrote a follow-up called Hunter, which, um, so the Turner Diaries was, M Timothy McVeigh called it his Bible. Um, he had a page up in his pocket the day he blew up Oklahoma City. Uh, it's very influential. Jay gives it to Clyde in this book, along with, um, you know, Behold a Pale Horse, which was written by a guy that had been in the military and he claimed to have been in naval intelligence and he was gunned down in front of his house 
uh, in a standoff with Arizona police, um, which only fueled the mythology. Uh, you know, everybody says, well, of course he was killed by police. You know, this is, you know, so it's, it is, it's kind of like a monster that uh, keeps eating its own tail. Um, yeah. So the royalty for the British system might propel that. I'm just trying to think of examples where the myth gets refreshed with the benefit of society, and, and how would you see that happening in America? So the could you all hear the question? Otherwise, yeah. So examples where the myth gets refreshed. It's interesting. I mean, I I, um, I think that that happens essentially every time that there's a shift. I mean, look at what's happening with Putin right now. I mean, I'm looking at at Russia in this. Right? There's a whole myth around Putin. And Putin is kind of bringing to bringing to life the whole mythology around the strong czar and the paternal czar, and he's essentially playing paternal czar in a way that was squelched for many years under communism. So, you know, I think oftentimes it has to do with someone taking advantage of a myth uh, in order to try to use it for their own to their own purpose, um, and driving that and kind of placing that myth within society. Because um, they're very potent. Myths, they're very, very potent, potent yeah, form yeah. of storytelling, right? Yeah. So it, Really, kind of works. Yeah, I don't know. Work. I don't know if it's happened in America at this point. The myth—it feels to me like we've kind of been clinging to the same myth for a long, long time. So I don't know that it's yeah. been refreshed. I mean, I guess I see a refreshing, in, in maybe not a good way, um, in America possibly. And again, not to be a big downer, but like I think the American dream, you know, of a generation or two ago, you know, was, you know, about. I mean, it's still owning a house and all that stuff, it but was possible. right, it was yeah. possible. Um, and but it, it also meant it also meant time leisure time which is a big theme and, and Josh's book certainly in mine a little bit and I think that now it really just is physical it's just um, what you can buy right so uh, along with buying a house the American dream I think means buying a big house and buying like the bigger car and right. and having lots of stuff whereas I think in the 70s or, or 80s it meant having time to pursue your Interests, no matter what they are, family, leisure time, whatever. Yeah, I think part of it may be my understanding of it, and then uh, maybe we'll take like one more question. But I think because um, I know there are people standing in the back. Sorry, guys. Um, but um, I think my feeling about it is not so much that it's been refreshed, but it's kind of been dragged on further and further using different means. So you know, in in nineteen twenty eight, the economist Keynes. Um, predicted that in 100 years, Americans would be working an average of 15 hours a week. And, uh, and the big problem was going to be how we were going to efficiently and, and wisely use all of our leisure time. Um, you know, right now, Ameri the American worker is over twice as productive as the American worker was in the 1940s and 50s, over twice as productive, and yet works more than a month worth of hours more each year than the American worker did in the 1940s and 50s. So why is that? You know, that's part, a big part of what I wanted to wrestle with with the book. Like, how did that happen that we're doing this? And, and, and you know, a lot of that has to do with, like Mike was saying, we buy more and more stuff. We have all this different technology that we need. There were no microwaves that you needed and no iPods that you needed and no iPads that you needed in 1940 and 1950. And that's where a lot of our energy is gone instead of into leisure time. Absolutely, absolutely, and yeah. And uh, the danger in that is the twist that nobody seems to have really locked on to. Right. In terms of articulating the being productive is not being involved in Yeah, right. You know? yeah. I, I think that's well, very that's, true. In Josh's book, I mean, that's one of the actual arcs really of the like story. It. I really you know. like it.
Thanks. Um, uh, let's do one more question, and then we'll let you all go. Go. Um, <laughs> let you all lose. No, the doors are locked. They're passed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hope you all brought your sleeping bags, because um, anybody? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Do you want to take that? Or? Um, what was it? Sorry. Yeah, yeah the, both, of, both of our books have big ideas in yeah. them, and yet also are grounded in character, right? And so the tension mm -hmm. in doing that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I guess that in coming up with a novel to write, I, it, something that would hold my own interest for as long as it would take me, and it took probably six, seven years, ultimately to write the book. I, in that time, I kind of feel like I wrote two or three different books because I kept changing as a, as a writer and what I what I wanted to, what kind of writer I wanted to be, what kind of writer, I, you know, I finally was able to see my strengths and my weaknesses and avoid, you know, the weaknesses and go towards the strengths and stuff like that. But it did hit me that I, I had to have a big idea, some sort of larger idea to sustain my own interest. And of course, but I, I think of myself more as a storyteller you know, rather than anything, really. So it had to be about these people dealing with things that could, uh, you know, be examined within that larger, uh, you know, canvas. Yeah, and for everyone's sake, I'm going to say ditto. Uh, <laughs> that was pretty much, pretty much exactly right. So, yeah, thank you all so Thanks much. For You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.